Take Back America on Tuesdays on your KC Morning Show. Myself and Professor Harvey K. We break it down, reclaiming that radical history. Yes, right here in Kansas City. On the show today, part two of our FDR month. I, every week, am getting more and more fired up every time we talk about FDR. I'm telling you, y'all, we're going to change the world. Watch us. Back in your feeds tomorrow. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends about us. We have seen a very significant jump, and I thank all of you for that because I'm telling you, word of mouth is still the way to go. And you know we got a good thing. You know we got a good thing. Two-time best local podcast kind of good thing. All right, I'm just bragging now. My name's Hartzell. A good day to be a Kansasian. Oh, always a good day. We'll see you in the morning. Bye. A creed, a creed at the core of every American whose story is not yet written. Yes, we can. The KC Morning Show. On January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News Special Report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Citians must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. Always a, a honor, a privilege, and a pleasure, my friend, my brother, my comrade. Get a chance to take back America every Tuesdays on your KC Morning Show. Professor Emeritus at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. Now you know we gotta talk a little bit of football before we we dig into the heavy stuff. Wait, wait. You get to say hello and I have to sit quiet. <laughs> Why is that? Because I refuse to let your number one seeded Packers have the first against my number two seeded Kansas City Chiefs, Harvey. Well, all I want to say is, yo, 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 Hartzell, it's great to see you. Wow, did we just do a rolls reverse? Yes. Freaky Friday, no, Freaky Tuesday on your KC Morning Show. My brother, how are you doing? Happy New Year. Has it been everything you thought 2022 would be? Well, given the disappointments that I've seen politically of late, it's everything I've feared it would be so far. <laughs> but having said that, and we'll get to football in a moment, seeing you... It's like a whole new day. And by the way, it is cold up here in Green Bay. It started the day a good number of degrees below zero windchill factor. I want to say it was like three degrees as a temperature and maybe, and I don't want to exaggerate too much, 15 degrees minus 15 windchill. How's that? That sounds terrible, Harvey. That sounds like something I don't want to be a part of. Well, think about it this way, and this will segue us into football. In two weeks' time, guess what's coming to Green Bay? A playoff game. Two weeks because somebody has a certain first round bye. 
must be nice. Let's put it this way. I'm glad for your sake that KC does not have to come to Green Bay in one of those games, no matter what transpires. That if things go right, both of our teams, having witnessed the demise of Dallas Cowboys and Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and I'm sure you can add a few teams yourself, that we will, we will see our teams meet up in L.A. And one of the things about L.A. is that it's a drier heat than Florida. Green Bay does not do well in humid, hot weather. I don't want us to take credit for this, but I will say that ever since you and I connected to Take Back America, I don't know, conditions do seem ideal for us to meet up in that big matchup, that Super Bowl. Again, I don't want us to take credit for it, but I'm also not going to not give us credit for it. Oh, the powers that be, you and I, (laughs) willed it to happen. And I want to go on record. I'm going to show you how magnanimous I am. If for some reason the Green Bay Packers do not make it, to LA, but the Kansas City Chiefs do, I will root for Kansas City regardless of who the NFC team is because I have no affection for any other NFC team that might well be going out there. So you you are guaranteed my voice on that occasion. Okay, I want to see tweets, Harvey K, because you tweet more than most of us, so I want to see some Chiefs tweets if, in fact, this does happen. And indeed, I will tweet them directly to you so your name appears on (laughs) all of them. How's that? I love it. Professor Harvey K, we entered FDR month just last week. We've been in FDR week for a few weeks now, if you want to consider our Bill Moyers preview episode. Right. And it's important. Oh, yeah, and this is, in many ways, an FDR month which I think we indicated. The Four Freedoms was last Thursday as an anniversary. Today, meaning tomorrow morning when you broadcast this, will be the anniversary, the 78th anniversary of the Economic Bill of Rights speech. Both of those we will get to in weeks ahead because we're going to make this basically January into February. It's going to be FDR days, okay? Franklin Delano Roosevelt days. And at the end of this month on January 30th is Franklin Delano Roosevelt's birthday. He was born in 1882, which makes this around, you know, as uh, what is that, 1882 to... to now would be what 140 years he would be you mentioned fdr days we are in a 2020 midterm year we could use a lot more fdr days in the coming months harvey oh jesus we could because i'll let everyone know this would probably be a part of our next broadcast not this one that fdr's popularity not only boomed it zoomed by 34 and what i mean by that is that the democrats contrary to historical assumptions actually increased their hold dramatically in the House and the Senate. The Democrats, admittedly, they were, a, they were not exactly altogether our kind of folks. These were Southern Democrats included. And those folks were white supremacists in the overwhelming majority of cases. But it is the case that FDR's popularity is what led to the enhancement of the Democratic hold on Congress. We did part one last week, the young FDR. So now we're getting to what, the middle ages of FDR? Yeah, well, he was born in 1882. Our first speech today is going to be in 1929. So that's 18 and 29 makes, what, 47? I mean, he would pass away at a young age of 63. So keep that in mind. And let's not forget, he's already suffered and will forever endure polio, basically in a wheelchair when he's not got his braces on and assisted to walk. But he's nevertheless, as I think I closed last week's episode, this new year is, is no better for my time and space than 2020 and 2021 were. But this will be the time in which you and I became comrades. So it's okay. Oh, I love that. 
But of course, that transcends time and space, right? Oh, Harvey, you're good. This man is good, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, so here he is. Here's FDR. He has not re-entered politics by way of public office since he lost the vice presidential run on the Democratic Party ticket in 1920. However, he has already, by way of the prominence of his name, a little bit of writing, by way of his wife's own activism and his own letters to Democrats across the country, he is himself considered not necessarily a contender ever for major public office yet, but he is considered someone who will speak with the best interests of the Democrats at heart. Now, in 1928, which will be the year that he ends up running for governor of New York, which is a surprising fact given the polio, what happens is that the governor of New York, Al Smith, a Catholic who succeeded to the the governorship of New York State, was nominated as the presidential candidate for the Democratic Party, which was a big risk for the Democrats. It was an age in which Protestants despised Catholics, especially in the South. And here was Al Smith, an Irish Catholic who had strong support amongst, say, Italians and Jews and others in New York City. So he was kind of like the ethnics candidate. And he was going to have to win in the South, which was not exactly something you would expect a Catholic to be able to do in a, in a part of the country dominated by Baptists, Southern Baptists. And keeping in mind that African-Americans themselves were, you know, I mean, there were those who could, but in the overwhelming majority just could not vote. Smith, in some ways, people wonder if Smith didn't push and encourage Roosevelt to run for governor on the assumption that if he won, he'd only last a couple of years because he just wouldn't be able to withstand trials and tribulations of the governor's office. And that way, if he lost in 1928 Al Smith, he could come back in 1930, perhaps, and reclaim the governorship. That's the kind of talk that prevailed. He did run for president, and Franklin Roosevelt secured the nomination for the governorship of New York. And while Al Smith lost the race for president, and to not the amazement, but the disappointment perhaps of Al Smith, did a hell of a good job as governor, in spite of the fact that in the course of the year in which he became the governor, the worst of the, of the Great Depression would begin. Stock market crash. The economy was already in, in trouble, but the stock market crash kind of was like the, the hammer to it. So before we get to the question of FDR in the course of the Depression, today we're going to be talking about his campaign speeches, the ways in which he, he emerges as not just a significant Democrat, but as a progressive Democrat, a liberal Democrat. He actually will end up changing the meaning of the word liberal as something we would think of as social democracy. And we can see the emergence, just as we saw him struggling with how to develop progressivism for himself in that first speech of 1912. Now we see a man who's as governor is charting a course as a progressive public figure on a national scale. And his inaugural address on January 1st, 1929, which in the book FDR on Democracy, I titled The Self-Supporting Man or Woman Has Become Extinct, begins in this way. You should take this, Hartzell, these opening paragraphs of a really good inaugural address, I think, because he makes key points. It is a proud thing to be a citizen of the state of New York, not because of our great population and our natural resources, nor on account of our industries, our trade, or our agricultural development but because the citizens of this state, more than any other state in the Union, have grown to realize the interdependence on each other which modern civilization has created. I object to having this spirit of personal civil responsibility to the state and to the individual which has placed New York in the lead as a progressive commonwealth. Described as humanitarian, it is far more than that. 
It is the recognition that our civilization cannot endure unless we, as individuals, realize our personal responsibility to and dependency on the rest of the world. For it is literally true that the self-supporting man or woman has become as extinct as the man of the Stone Age. Without the help of thousands of others, any one of us would die, naked and starved. Consider the bread upon our table, the clothes upon our backs, the luxuries that make life pleasant. How many men worked in sunlit fields, in dark mines, in the fierce heat of molten metal, and among the looms and wheels of countless factories, in order to create them for our use and enjoyment. Well said. And here's the thing I want people to remember, and I, I'm assuming, of course, that everyone's been listening to every week of our podcast. Oh, absolutely. Our Tuesdays of Taking Back America by way of the KC Morning Show. If they recall, last week, the very first speech we took up was the speech in 1912 to the People's Forum. And what's significant in that speech was the fact that he was trying to work out a new progressivism, or at least a progressivism for himself to go forward in politics. And in that speech, he was talking about the inadequacy of mere competition, and, but he was trying to avoid being identified as a socialist, and he did talk about cooperation. And here, what he's emphasizing once again, and this, of course, is 17 years later, is the idea of the interdependence and what we would say is the imperative of solidarity to advance. So he's really talking about interdependence. He's emphasizing the idea of the public good. And his belief that you can harness democratic government, that's what he will go on to talk about in the rest of the speech, which we don't have time to cover. But he emphasized the imperative that democratic government is something we can harness to advance the public good and to benefit all of us and reduce inequality, even as we're enhancing freedom and democracy. It's a tool. It's always supposed to have been a tool, right? That's right. And, you know, I don't want to draw a direct line, but it does seem to me that when Bernie spoke of not me, us, those are the kinds of things that Bernie had in his head. Anyhow, he's a very successful governor of New York, and the proof of his popularity is this. The Depression hits in 1928-29, and I don't know if, if people realize, but in those days, most of the governorships, as I recall from my reading, were two-year positions. So it meant that he had to run again in 1930 for re-election, and he won again. And I will also add that in the course of his Depression governorship, he began a series of experiments, innovations, public initiatives that he would then bring with him to Washington when he will go on to win the presidency. There was the makings of what would be called the Civilian Conservation Corps that they pursued in New York State. He, he was committed to pursuing the enhancement of energy resources for the citizens, especially the farmers of New York, by harnessing hydroelectric power. I know today a lot of people question it, but in its day, that was considered smart, safe, and very effective. Let's put it this way. It's still better than setting up more nuclear power plants. I mean, that's a sidebar to everything. Well, let's go on to the fact that in 1932, he enters the campaign for the Democratic nomination for president of the United States. Now, I want to make it clear that a lot of historians, even today, will say something like, well, you know, FDR didn't really know what the New Deal meant when he coined the term, as we'll see in the course of when he accepts the nomination. Or, you know, FDR wasn't much of an intellectual Frankly, a lot of intellectuals are pretty awful people anyhow, so I don't care if he was an intellectual or not. But to go on from there, the fact is that he really had learned from his own experience the trials and tribulations of the polio, from having been a state senator, from having struggled to make sense of what progressivism would mean to him, especially having to be in charge of the state of New York as governor when the 
depression is hitting the city and the state as hard as it did. And I want to point out to everyone that his pride in New York State was not a kind of, it wasn't really a chauvinism. New York State was the most important state at that time. California had yet to become the state it would become, number one. And much of the rest of the country, you know, the South was basically living in the feudal age. You know, the Midwest was growing and states like Michigan and, and, and Wisconsin were seeing the development of industry. But New York State was the place where New York City was. And New York City really was setting the beat for the rest of the country. And by the way, is the place where we refer to when we say the crash, right? Meaning the, you know, the collapse of the stock market. And of course, there were bread lines and soup kitchens and apple sellers and pencil sellers on street corners in the course of the Depression in every city. And every road of consequence, every back street in rural areas had Hoovervilles, as they were called. Hoovervilles were the shanty towns that people came to call Hoovervilles because it was Hoover's utter inadequacy as president that compelled people, literally, who were made homeless homeless or farmless to set up shacks or tents on the side of the road. Devastating times. I mean, 25% unemployment at least, one in three. One of every two African-Americans were probably unemployed. Underemployment, by the way, where, you know, which means you don't have enough, you're not making enough to make a living. You're struggling. Hundreds of thousands of teenagers hit the road as hobos, as they were called. We have this image of a hobo as a middle-aged guy, you know, which was not uncommon at all. But in fact, teenagers made up several hundred thousands of their numbers because parents had to tell their kids, we can't keep you. You've got to go out and find a way, meaning we can't even keep you here in the house. But it's also notable, we'll get to this when we get to the New Deal, how successful in some ways, the Roosevelt administration was, as much as they didn't end the Great Depression necessarily, they really were successful for, for millions of people in addressing it. But let's come back to 1932. Roosevelt is now a candidate for president, not yet the nominee. And in April 1932, he gave a speech on radio from Albany, New York, which is the capital of, of New York State. And in this speech, he lays out really at the makings of the New Deal, okay? In the course of his campaign, by the way, he's going to talk about old age pensions for all, meaning Social Security. He's going to talk about addressing the environment by way of fighting soil erosion. In the course of early years of his presidency, of course, the Great Dust Bowl, which literally devastated the Plain states, Oklahoma, I assume good parts of Missouri and elsewhere, were just Absolutely. devastated by the Dust Bowl. So he's going to talk about all the things that need to be addressed and the imperative that the federal government address them. So in this first speech, Speech, which I've titled, and I think it's known as the Forgotten Man Speech, April 7th of 1932. We're going to be selective in terms of what we read from this speech, but we think we've taken the most important paragraphs for you to hear. So Hartzell, why don't you start out? These unhappy times call for the building of plans that rest upon the forgotten, the unorganized but the indispensable units of economic power for plans like those of 1917 that build from the bottom up, not from the top down, that put their faith once more in the forgotten man at the bottom of the economic pyramid. Well said. Let's move on. Let's move on, okay? There's so many other good words that I'd love to spend time on, but we'd have people sitting all morning listening to us, which of course I know they want to do, but, but you and I don't have all afternoon to sit and read this stuff. They would be better for it, Harvey, that's for sure. Definitely. Maybe we should have made this the FDR winter-spring semester. And by the way, as a sidebar to all this, today is actually the anniversary of Thomas Paine's Common Sense. And I, wa and I did this morning tweet our earlier Common Sense conversation, go back in the archives of Casey Morning Show and look for 
the Thomas Paine episode. I believe it was called Reclaiming Our Common Sense, if I remember right. That sounds good to me. And if it wasn't, we'll think of it that way anyhow. <laughs> okay, so the speech we're going to go to next, I've titled Bold, Persistent Experimentation. Now, it's notable that he gave this speech at a university in Atlanta, Georgia, on May 22nd, 1932. In this speech, in words that we're not going to necessarily cover, but we're going to go to the heart of the matter at the end of the speech, he talks about the wastefulness of unregulated American capitalism. He talks about the imperative of transforming our political economy. Not going to mention the word socialism, obviously. Why? Because he'd get nowhere at that moment. You know, a lot of people, I don't know where they get the idea that the United States was on the verge of a socialist revolution. It may well have been on the verge of some kind of upheaval, but it might well have been fascist. And what FDR wanted to do was save democracy. That's the key. So anyhow, in this speech, he does talk about the wastefulness of capitalism. And if you get a chance, pick up FDR and democracy. The speech is in there. I think you'll find it very enjoyable to read. In any case, it'll echo much of your thinking probably about the wastefulness of capitalism. Do you mind taking the first paragraph? I'll take the first. The country needs and, unless I mistake its temper, the country demands bold, persistent experimentation. It is common sense to take a method and try it. If it fails, admit it frankly and try another. But above all, try something. The millions who are in want will not stand by silently forever while the things to satisfy their needs are within easy reach. Right. And I want to repeat, there's no guarantee it would have been a left radical struggle. It might well have been a right wing fascist, as was already taking place in Europe at the time. The last paragraph, which I probably should have gone straight to, I want to tell everyone that when I finish, I want to make a couple of remarks about some of the things in this paragraph. Here he goes. We need enthusiasm, imagination, and the ability to face facts, even unpleasant ones, bravely. We need to correct by drastic means if necessary the faults in our economic system from which we now suffer. We need the courage of the young. Keep in mind, he's speaking at a university right now. Yours is not the task of making your way in the world, but the task of remaking the world which you will find before you. May every one of us be granted the courage the faith and the vision to give the best that is in us to that remaking. And I want to remind everyone first, don't forget last week we talked about, reviewed a speech he gave in 1926 at the Milton Academy to high schoolers. Now these would be the same cohort, you might say, of, of young people who are now at university. Not the same people, but it's that same age cohort that he's addressing. And in that first speech in 26, he talked about the fear he had that conservatives would hold power for too long. And it happened. The conservatives held power. Americans are in the midst of the Great Depression, the worst economic and social catastrophe in U.S. history. And other catastrophes like had already taken place. But this is the worst in many ways. And he's calling on young people to think about transforming America and the world. Now is the time, you might say, not to sound like Barack Obama if he said that, because he didn't make that possible. But let's go with the last sentence. Here we go. Yours is not the task of making your way in the world, but the task of remaking the world which you will find before you. May every one of us be granted the courage, the faith, and the vision to give the best that is in us to that remaking. He's rallying young people, rallying young people to transform America. Now, most of those young people could still not vote. 21 years of age would have been the voting age at that time. But he knows that it's the energy of youth, the aspirations of youth, and that these folks are utterly essential to transforming the nation, to liberating it from how corporate capitalism has constrained it. 
Well, I think it's so interesting. You said that there was no guarantee that you're right. The country didn't go off into a, a fascist trajectory. But in this last paragraph, he is giving you reason why it should not. He is not even letting you have the chance to put those ideas into your mind because this is what a social democracy should really stand for. I don't want to jump too far ahead because you may be making this point later, but I feel like that is part of the problem that we're in now. The conditions are just as ideal today in 2022 for a fascist absolutely as it was back then and but we have no one biden democrats i mean there's no one who's presenting us with these these ideals of freedom the possibility of it all for biden he wants you to look for the soul of america i don't see nothing yet harvey you find that soul i haven't found it yet when you were a kid did you ever have anyone read you the amelia bedelia books oh yeah i used to love amelia bedelia remember she took everything at literal value well somebody said to you we're in search of the soul of America. Would you pick up your shoe and look at the bottom of it? <laughs> okay, so let's go to the punchline speech of this campaign. But it's not the final speech. Final speech that we're going to address, and there were others we could do, and it's tempting to do them, will be even more radical than what we're about to do. But here we go. This is the acceptance speech of the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, Illinois, July 2nd, 1932. And I want to make it clear to people that FDR broke with traditions. Now, here's a guy who's been in a wheelchair and will never really be able to escape it unless, as I said, he's got those leg braces on and someone's assisting him as he walks. What he does, first of all, is once he has won the nomination, he decides he's going he's gonna to go to Chicago to give the acceptance speech. The tradition was that whoever won the nomination of either party gave the acceptance speech, usually from their own home on the front porch. No, he says, I'm going to Chicago. Making an even more dynamic appearance is he decides he's going to fly there in 1932. He's going to fly there. So he's breaking with tradition. I'm going to say right now, I'm going to read a line from the speech that we'll get back to. And then I'm going to hand it over to you, Hartzell. There's a line I want you to all realize is really radical in this speech. He will go on to say, we must lay hold of the fact that economic laws are not made by nature. They are made by human beings. We must not allow so-called laws of nature to stand in the way of making history. How's that? Hartzell, take it away. Let it also be symbolic that in doing so, I broke traditions. Let it be from now on the task of our party to break foolish traditions. We will break foolish traditions and leave it to the Republican leadership, far more skilled in that art, to break promises. Right. <laughs> I love it. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if he himself wrote that particular line, but he had speechwriters. In the run-up to the presidential campaign, his chief of staff, Samuel Rosenman, who was a lawyer and, and a judge, I don't think know if he was yet a judge, but he was a lawyer, and had been an aide to Al Smith when he was governor. Al Smith, he said to FDR, I'm going to give you Samuel Rosenman. If you want to be a successful politician, you need Samuel Rosenman. He will keep you in line and organized, kind of chief of staff. Samuel Rosenman suggested to FDR that they create what was known as the Brains Trust. Two academics and a lawyer, plus Samuel Rosenman, who would serve as a kind of incubator of ideas. And if FDR had things in his mind, that they would help him clarify those ideas. Let me tell you who was in it. So it was Moley, who was political scientist and a criminal justice professor, I believe at Columbia University. And it was Rexford, great name, right? Tugwell, 
This guy I really liked, by the way. He was an agricultural economist at Columbia University. And he, he really was, he was with FDR for many years to come. He would actually be the assistant secretary of agriculture under Henry Wallace during the 1930s. And the third was Adolf Burley. And Burley was a lawyer who would be with the Roosevelt administration actually in many ways all the way through World War II, as would Tugwell in his own fashion. They would take responsibility in many ways for helping FDR put his thoughts and aspirations into the form of propositions and ideas on a, if you like, for public consumption. But here's the thing. They would also sometimes carve out a speech for him to present based on what he wanted to say. But it was well known that usually in the most important speeches, it was FDR who basically wrote what was called the peroration, the punchline of the speech. But let, let's continue. FDR says, there are two ways of viewing the government's duty in matters affecting economic and social life. The first sees to it that a favored few are helped and hopes that some of their prosperity will leak through, sift through to labor, to farmer, to the small businessman. That theory belongs to the party of Toryism. And I had hoped that most of the Tories had left this country in 1776. There's some key things I want everyone to notice in here. The first thing I'll take up is the fact that FDR was really, and I'm not the person who coined this term, the history teacher in chief. They loved going back to the revolution and referring to his political and economic enemies as Tories. He, later, as we'll see in a speech in the mid-30s, he called them economic royalists. The other thing I want to call to people's attention is that he says, you know, that this other party, they see government's duty to favor the favored few. And maybe there'll be, and I'll now use the modern term for it, a trickle down effect, which I can't help but imagine was to piss on people. Okay. <laughs> you may want to edit that part out. Oh, we're keeping that one, Harvey K. Well, that's fine. Okay. The point is that they had this trickle down idea. Let the rich get richer and things will somehow flow out of their, you know, fall out of their pockets. It'll make everybody else all the better off. No. Point is for FDR, there was another way of proceeding. And that is, as we've already heard him say, to build from the bottom up. All right, so take that, that next paragraph we talked about earlier. But it is not and never will be the theory of the Democratic Party. This is no time for fear, for reaction, or for timidity. Here and now, I invite those nominal Republicans who find that their conscience cannot be squared with the groping and the failure of their party leaders to join hands with us, here and now, in equal measure. I warn those nominal Democrats who squint at the future with their faces turned toward the past and who feel no responsibility to the demands of the new time that they are out of step with their party. Yes, the people of this country want a genuine choice this year, not a choice between two names for the same reactionary doctrine. Ours must be a party of liberal thought, of planned action, of enlightened international outlook, and of the greatest good to the greatest number of our citizens. Absolutely. Later in the speech, FDR, really, it's quite a remarkable speech. And the, the crowd in Chicago just ate it up. They loved it. The noise is incredible. And you said this, Harvey, it was a surprise, right? Oh, yeah. For him to show up in Chicago, you bet. There might have been murmurs, hey, Roosevelt's coming. But the point is, they would never have expected to see him there. But when they did see him, they exploded in unprecedented enthusiasm. So let's go on to these other concluding paragraphs. There's a point in the speech where he says, what do the people of America want more than anything else? Why don't you read that paragraph, Hartzell, and then I'll take the next one. What do the people of America want more than anything else? To my mind, they want two things. Work with all the moral and spiritual values that go with it, and with work, a reasonable measure of security, 
security for themselves and for their wives and children. Work and security, these are more than words. They are more than facts. They are the spiritual values, the true goal towards which our efforts of reconstruction should lead. These are the values that this program is intended to gain. These are the values we have failed to achieve by the leadership we have now. And then he says, and this is where that really radical line comes in. Our Republican leaders tell us economic laws, sacred, inviolable, unchangeable, cause panics, which no one could prevent. But while they prate of economic laws, men and women are starving. We must lay hold of the fact that economic laws are not made by nature. They are made by human beings. I'm going to repeat that sentence. And if any of you can type fast, type it fast and put it on Facebook, on Twitter, take a picture of it and send it to Instagram. Get these two lines out. Never let a Democrat look at the likes of a Bernie Sanders again and say, we can't afford Medicare for all. We must lay hold of the fact that economic laws are not made by nature, FDR was saying. They are made by human beings. And then there's the final paragraph. I pledge you, I pledge myself to a new deal for the American people. Take that next sentence and finish it up. Let us all here assembled constitute ourselves prophets of a new order of competence and of courage. This is more than a political campaign. It is a call to arms. Give me your help, not to win votes alone, but to win in this crusade to restore America to its own people. I don't know if everybody knows their Old and New Testaments, but this close is very reminiscent of a, a little piece in the Old Testament where Moses is meeting with the elders of the 10 tribes of Israel up on a hill in a tent. And in one of the tribes, at least, you know, everyone's waiting, wondering what's going on. What are the decisions being made? And suddenly there are these two young men, I think they were called Eldad and Medad. And all of a sudden they're spouting ideas of their own and people are horrified. How dare ordinary folks are speaking ideas that they believed only the likes of a Moses or that one of the elders could speak. And Moses, when he returns to this particular grouping, they say to him, Moses, Moses, these folks are trying to take over, something to that effect. You know, they're speaking as if they're leaders, that they have ideas. And Moses, this is in the Bible, to the amazement of everyone says, would that all of God's people be prophets. And here's FDR, who, by the way, knew his Bible. Let us all here assembled constitute ourselves prophets of a new order of competence and courage. I always get a kick out of that when I hear that. You know, I watched a video you were on recently through the Gravel Institute, and we're going to post a link to that in the show notes. Oh, thank you. You had a line, I think it was actually a quote, and it went very similar to what you just said, that FDR line. We can all be founders. We must all be founders, or we are all founders. You bet. It wasn't FDR who said it, though I could easily imagine him saying it somewhere along the line. It was Robert Jackson in 1938, and he was talking to the National Lawyers Guild, which was the progressive lawyers organization. And he said this, if you don't mind my putting out his own words, we too are founders. We too are makers of a nation. We too are called upon to write, to defend, and to make live new bills of right. What's interesting is he didn't pick that line out of thin air or come up with it himself. Most people don't realize that economic bill of rights speech, which I made the video with the Gravel Institute. I hope everyone goes and looks for it. And if you like it, tweet it or put it on your Facebook page. We're giving away something that'll be in a future episode. The economic bill of rights idea actually begins as an idea of his, let's not forget, in 1932. 
which is what we're going to get to next when he calls for an economic declaration of rights. And he appoints a National Resources Programming Board, which will operate during the 30s to come up with ideas, to look at the economy and see ways that they can create a social democratic America. If I showed you, it's a major report. It's fairly hefty. And in there, they already outline and given to FDR as a report, I believe in 1941-42, they outline exactly what would be in the Economic Bill of Rights. Let's go on to that speech. Let's see how he's already going to propose it in 1932. This is a speech that I've titled for the sake of this volume, and I believe I'm the one who titled it, Every Man Has a Right to Life, an Economic Declaration of Rights. So in 1932, he's now on the campaign trail as the nominee. And in September of 1932, to be precise, September 23rd, 1932, he has gone out to California and is going to address the members of the Commonwealth Club. And I assume the members of the Commonwealth Club were the most prominent, probably the wealthiest, figures in San Francisco. That's, I don't know much more about the Commonwealth Club than that. But in this speech, he lays out an argument about American history, as he often does. And in this argument about American history, he says that it's time for a new declaration, recalling the Declaration of Independence. He actually says for too long in favor of economic growth and development, we've allowed corporate leaders, sorry, titans of industry, what we would call corporate elite or corporate bosses, to do as they please, to trample on the fundamental promise that was in the Declaration of Independence. And what has happened? Workers, farmers, even small stockholders and small business people have suffered the consequences of allowing the concentration of power and wealth that developed in the course of the Gilded Age. So he conjures forth everyone in everyone's mind an image of the declaration, and he says it's time for a new declaration. And we'll go into the speech. And Hartzell, I'll leave it to you to start off. As I see it, the task of government in its relation to business is to assist the development of an economic declaration of rights, an economic constitutional order. This is the common task of statesmen and businessmen. It is the minimum requirement of a more permanently safe order of things. Now notice, he's obviously speaking to these business people. Admittedly, this is no socialist who's speaking. But what he is saying to them is, this is something that you folks have got to be involved in. He's still hesitant to tell them we're going to kick the shit out of you if you don't do what we say. But it's implied as he goes on to talk about the need for a new declaration. And he says further in the speech, the Declaration of Independence discusses the problem of government in terms of a contract contract. And he says, what we need to do is we need a new social contract. And by the way, in the course of the 1980s and 90s, what we came to realize is the social contract that was written in the course of the 30s that had provided for the making of a more liberal social democratic America in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s was under siege, was suffering the attack by conservatives, neoliberals, and the corporate bosses. And he says, if I can pick up from what you were saying, the task of statesmanship has always been the redefinition of these rights in terms of a changing and growing social order. New conditions impose new requirements upon government and those who conduct government. And I hand it over to you for that paragraph we found so important. The terms of that contract are as old as the Republic and as new as the new economic order. Every man has a right to life. And this means that he has also a right to make a comfortable living. He may, by sloth or crime, decline to exercise that right, but it may not be denied him. 
we have no actual famine or dearth. Our industrial and agricultural mechanism can produce enough and to spare. Our government, formal and informal, political and economic, owes to everyone an avenue to possess himself of a portion of that plenty sufficient for his needs through his own work. Right. He is laying out the fundamentals of a new American liberalism or what we would eventually come to see as social democracy. So there we have it. We have FDR. And by the way, there are other speeches that would be great, other lines that would be fabulous. We wanted to show everyone that this guy who back in 1912 was struggling for a new progressivism, who suffered polio and seemed to be counted out of any kind of role in making history and public, for that matter, of public life, now has restored himself, not physically, but he's restored himself politically as governor of New York, he, that he has now become the candidate for president, the nominee for president of the Democratic Party, and he is laying out a new deal, a new democratic vision, if you like, a new social contract. And he's standing on Americans' best tradition, the promise laid out in the Declaration of Independence. Every one of us, whether we are native-born or newly arrived, that promise of the Declaration is all men are created equal. We would say today all men and women are created equal endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, let's understand something. Life means a man and or a woman in a home must be able to afford a good life, a comfortable life for a family. This is the moment in which they were speaking of a family wage. Moreover, liberty, liberty as in political freedom and political power and capacity. And last but not least, the pursuit of happiness, not the pursuit of property, as was the case for so long in the 18th century and what was written. Now we're in the 20th century and FDR is laying out the promise of the declaration for all. And I want to repeat, whether native born or newly arrived. Yes, Hartzell and I are fully aware of the fact that fundamental freedoms are denied during these days to African-Americans, especially in the South. Similarly, we would say Mexican-Americans in much of the Southwest, but by no means as drastically as African-Americans were having to endure it in the South. But I will also tell everyone that African-American intellectuals and labor people heard these kinds of words and they believed that it was opening an opening to possibilities. And in the course of the 1930s, the civil rights movement will take off in a brand new way. Harvey, at some point, maybe once we get done with FDR, I would love for us to have an episode talking about those black radicals of the 30s. So much kind of gets revised down to just the struggle of the 50s and 60s. And to say that nothing happened before or after it does a disservice to black folks and those allies. I think that we are not helping our progressive cause, especially as we try to find those stories, by not talking about those stories. <laughs> Yeah, well, they should at least start highlighting their place in the 30s and, and what they were setting out to accomplish. Let me just say that when we go beyond FDR, we're going to first turn to a group of poets. Hartzell and I have talked about three of them. I'm going to propose that we talk about four of them at the time. Those will include Archibald MacLeish, Stephen Vincent Benet. That's the name I haven't mentioned to Hartzell. The third would be Carl Sandburg. And the fourth, arguably the greatest of the crew, the African-American, but decidedly American poet, Langston Hughes, who we've talked about before, but we've got another damn good poem to give them, right? Absolutely we do. Before we close, Professor Cake, we update this thing for the time. We're taking back America, not in the 30s and 40s. We're taking back America right now in 2022. And I guess my through line for this, and you mentioned it earlier in the show, it was FDR basically trying to make sense of what it means to be 
a progressive and in 2022 we may have folks in our car right now trying to make sense in this moment what it means to be a progressive how do you help them work through that professor k let me leave it with this thought to be an american truly an american is to be a radical drop the mic my friends professor harvey k he is professor emeritus at the university of wisconsin green bay my brother next week back to fdr you bet you bet and good luck this weekend with the kansas city chiefs versus the we got the steelers coming to town nobody can root for the steelers not with that quarterback well hey you enjoy your week off professor k (laughs) (laughs) i can tell you i will this weekend be rooting for the chiefs professor k your chiefs gear is in the mail brother i got a hat coming your way (laughs) we'll chat next week you bet You're listening to the KC Morning Show.